our responsibility isn't to prepare the player for the next game or really even the next training session. That's definitely the club's responsibility to do that. And that's what they're responsible for and accountable for, right? We're there to help the player prepare in the longer term for the rest of their career. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this is the first episode of 2024 and it brings Ben Rosenblatt and James Collins onto the podcast. So Ben's third time, James's debut, and it's all about external coaches working with players. So especially in the UK and Europe, it's not very common for players to have these external coaching and support teams. In America, it's very different because that's the way their leagues are set up. But the UK UK athletes of all different levels are looking to the US and building these performance teams, these support teams around them. And Ben and James have first and experience of not only working inside a club and working with externals, but now been external coaches and uh, and support systems themselves. So we have a real dive into how you deal with this new phenomenon, especially new for here in the UK and Europe, how you maximize it, how you work with the coaches, with the team, with the coaches, with the player. It's a really interesting view of where support is going for elite athletes, but not just the top end, all the way down the pyramid. So a really interesting episode coming up with Ben and James. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot U-S. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ben and James. Ben Rosenbach and James Collins, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thanks very much. It's so uh, this is so incredible to be back. Thanks very much for having us. My pleasure. Thank you, Rob. No, my pleasure. Ben, this is your third time. I believe third, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Left foot, right foot, header. <laughs> a hat trick, a season pro, a season <laughs> yeah. pro, and I'm sure that's you've done it. many James, so you're probably just as experienced as uh, as Ben on this one. But before we dive into the the meat of the conversation, which I think is going to be really interesting for people, and some and, and a 
a topic that I previously thought was just for that kind of higher end practitioner to deal with. But speaking to you guys, definitely, definitely not. So we'll get into that in a second. But just before we do, James, would you mind just giving us a bit of a, a brief intro to you? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rob. Debut today, so excited about that. Um, yeah, so I'm a sports nutritionist by trade. I, I started with the UK Sports Institute back in 2006, a similar time. That's where I actually met, met Ben there as well. Um, so I started off with the EIS at the time, went in-house at Arsenal as head of nutrition for seven seasons. Uh, along the way, consulted with England with a really unsuccessful World Cup in 2014, uh, with France marginally better in 2018, and also led the UEFA nutrition consensus uh, recently as well. And currently, I'm managing director of Intra Performance Group, and we provide nutrition services to organisations, uh, strategic support, um, historically Chelsea Football Club, and some others. And then we also manage a portfolio of footballers and talent from Europe and the UK as well. Which is going to be the crux of the conversation. But before we do, over to you, Ben. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, that, that was an intimidating start there, James. So I've, I've um, yeah, so my background is in strength and conditioning and physical performance. Um, I got my PhD in sports biomechanics in uh, 2013, looking at the transfer of training, um, and I've been working uh, in intensive rehabilitation with Olympic sports, which is where I met James. Worked in Premier League Championship football um, and led the physical performance of the Great Britain hockey team into the, which is the first time we spoke in the build-up to the Rio Olympics. Then went over to work uh, lead physical performance of the men's pathway for the FA, which is the second time we spoke for the last seven years. And I guess similar to James, I've set up a company called Two Nine Two Performance, which aims to provide individuals with individual physical performance support. And so myself and James have partnered because we've got a, um, a real passion around delivering interdisciplinary work and, and connecting um, and connecting athletes, connecting uh, different performance groups and services. Um, and, and we recognize that we can do better work together than if we try to do things alone. This is nothing to do with the conversation we're going to have over the next 45 minutes, but I'm fascinated to know because I've been through this process. And I know it, I was drag kicking and screaming through it. Where's 292 come from? And James, get prep because I'm coming for yours in a minute. Ben, where's 292 come from? 292 is the uh, alphanumeric conversion of an ancient Hebrew word, which is ruach. And ruach is your life force, your spirit, and your energy. Um, so that, that's what I stumbled across sort of late one night trying to desperately think of a, a name for the company. That's so much better. Oh, you completely dumb so me that, yes. So much better than so much, <laughs> so much better than mine, James. What about you? Well, just so much thoughts gone into that. I was looking for a word that described working in performance. You know, our work within organisations, but then also potentially some of the strategies. So, intra, we tried on a few intra works. Just wanted shorts um, and to have the ability to add things on at a later date. And that's it. Basic. Mine's. How about you, Rob? Um, well, mine was trying to get, this is sports myth, of course. This is trying to get a word or a phrase that encompassed the kind of craft element of coaching. And then that was the Smith bit. And then it kind of, yeah, the, the rest did itself, like locksmith, blacksmith, wordsmith, all this kind of thing. So no way as deep as yours. No, but that, that really resonates with me. Because I feel that there's this huge debate in 
performance support around is it a science or is it an art and, and I think that's the kind of wrong spectrum to be viewing the work we do from we're we're craftspeople we have skills we have trade skills we've been trained in different areas and we're aiming to deploy them to help people improve different aspects of their performance so that's in my mind it's a trade it's a, it's a craft um so I, I, that really really resonates with me thank you for that that's made me feel good rather than just plucking it two names out of the out of the air and sticking them together <laughs> but uh yeah it's um yeah i think there was, there's a brand called tracksmith as well which is for track apparel and things like that track and field apparel anyway as you both alluded to the crux of the conversation will be around providing these performance solutions to individual athletes versus 99.9 percent of people come on and discuss what they're doing with a an organization so i think this is really really interesting from my perspective because like i said in the little intro this is always something that has come up a couple of times in in podcasts but it was always me thinking that it'd be the like you guys at the fa when you were there you're dealing with that kind of thing but having spoken to james the other day that's just not the case this is filtering down this is lower league footballers looking for that individualized approach so my first my first question is across the whole spectrum why are players at this point in time looking for that more individualized approach i'll come to you first james yeah i think there's a bit of a backstory to this rob um and again ben feel free to jump in but you know i think with if we take football and other elite sports you know a trend that we're starting to see you know from our colleagues in the u.s especially and across europe is that more individual athletes are starting to build their own individual support teams. You know, it's happening within basketball. And Ben and I know with an experience of our own companies supporting golfers in the PGA and elite cricketers as well, that there are sports now trying to build their own performance team around the talent. Now, I think it's quite interesting that one of the things that we're looking into is that we've got a lot of the agencies and management that represent these talent also represent footballers, right? So we have footballers, we have musicians, we have elite athletes all in one uh, one management team. And one of the things that we're experiencing, both Ben and I, is that we're having more agents come to us who have a bit more of a holistic view of a player's career. And they're wondering, actually, how can we prolong this career? And how can we make sure in my sport that we're doing as much as we can? So for example, within football now, we're having more agents and more players coming through saying, look, I might have five or six moves in my career. How can I ensure that I'm at my optimal level within each move? And it isn't, we're not taking for granted what club that I'm going to be at or what country that's going to be in as well. So I think for us, culturally, there's a bit of a move and a bit of a trend that we're starting to witness. And I think for for us personally, we're witnessing players just wanting a greater level of individual support um, to support and supplement what they're doing within the clubs as well. When did you first come across this, but uh, James? We onboarded our first individual player four years ago. So, yeah, that was, I mean, when we first came across it, this was probably when I was working back at Arsenal and it was in a slightly different form. There were some players seeking external support at that time, but in terms of a service that we were offering with Intra, it was around four years ago where essentially we had more players coming to us and we were really trying to test, look, is this a service we believe in? Is this a service that we feel adds value? And 
you know, probably over that period of time takes us where we are today and, and Ben and I having the conversation and really sharing our ethos of working together in an interdisciplinary way and seeing, look, how can we, you know, how can we put a, a solid and robust service together with players for them individually, but also in good communication with the clubs as well. From your time at the FA, Ben, did you, because you, you've both worked on the side dealing with players who have these this kind of support, was it always a positive, um, positive relationship? Do you know what? Do you know what, Rob? I think that I've just uh, first. I think James has articulated that really, really well. But the, the thing I'd just like to add quickly is that I, I've this isn't for me a new phenomenon. This is something that has been going on for as long as I've been involved in elite sport, which is closing in on twenty years now. And in fact, one of the first full-time jobs I had was at the Olympic Medical Institute which was essentially an external support service for individual athletes or athletes already operating within national governing bodies to go and seek external support. And it was provided for by the British Olympic Association. And then again, at the intensive rehab unit uh, by the BRA and the EIS. Again, we were set up as an independent service to try and provide support to individual athletes who are in already really, really well functioning national governing bodies or sports team environments. And one of the things that I, I guess, you know, has, uh, so I've always thought it's kind of a good idea because I've always been doing that type of work, or type of role. And even with England, you could probably consider yourself as an external support provider to the players who are spending most of their time within their club environment. So naturally for me, it's always been something that, that I've embraced. When we were at the IU, we collected a lot of data on it. And we found that athletes' perceptions of stress uh, significantly decreased over the course of five days and perceptions of recovery significantly increased and then we were able to attribute to that fact that they that they felt first of all they were in a kind of collegiate environment they had peers around them that were supporting them but then they were also in an environment where they had an interdisciplinary team which was there just for them and, and focusing on on them um, so, which of course the teams that they were already operating in were doing as well, but we just had the capacity to focus on the one, two, three, four athletes that were with us at that particular point in time. Whereas we know when you're working in a team, you have to be focusing on, on absolutely everybody. So, so for me, it, it's not a new phenomenon, um, and that's also why, personally, I've always embraced it. For me, the message is with a footballer or any athlete that they are trying to take ownership of an aspect of their game or an aspect of their performance which they feel you know really that they take value in they find really really important to them so as a coach in an organization it's my responsibility to embrace that and find ways of supporting that and then do the due diligence with that person to help them, to make sure that they're preparing the athlete in the way that's going to really help them support the performances that the athletes are trying to deliver as well going to come back to you James because you mentioned something when we spoke <clears throat> last week and you, you'd said about musicians and business execs and individual sports like golf in the context of bring more what the audience is involved in which is professional sport what can we learn from the work you've done with business execs and musicians who've had this had this support and these support systems for by the sounds of it much longer yeah, I think it's really interesting, Rob. I think the word that Ben and I often use with this is cross-pollination. And, you know, I'm a real firm believer that all of these 
the talent cross-pollinate. So for example, we used the example before of the management agency. They're going to have uh, headline musicians on their books. They're going to have elite level footballers, World Cup winning footballers. They're going to have uh, tour open major winning golfers as well, for example. And all of these guys talk, you know, all of these guys talk and the management agents talk as well. And everyone is looking for the next thing that can confer a performance advantage, both in the short term over that season or long term throughout the career. And the way we tend to approach it, Rob, if I'm honest, is when we're working with these talent is, I tend to say it's the same science, but a different rapper. And we apply the same processes, whether it's a musician, whether it's a golfer, whether it's a footballer, it's a long-term program over 12 months. But for us, it's really important we learn and understand the contextual environment for that performer as well. And that's something we work hard to do. The one thing I would say, though, in each of these sports and each of these environments is that everyone has a performance question. And so, for example, got, you know, two examples here. You know, the first might be a headline musician we worked with recently. Biggest event for him is a Glastonbury headliner. So it was a really new performance question for him. And the question he came to me with was actually, look, for this event, it's going to be a 90 minute set as opposed to a 60 minute set. He's quite an energetic performer. So the energy cost of that performance is going to be a lot higher. We also know it's at Glastonbury. It's going to be around 10 p.m. at night. It's going to be a lot warmer under the lights there as well. Now, alongside that, leading in, he said, hey, look, James, I really want to optimize my physique, my body composition. So for him, we had to undergo a period of reducing his body fat in the same period. But this is the same process that we would probably undergo with a track and field athlete who is preparing for an Olympic Games. You know, a period of preparing them and, and actually refining their competition strategies as well. So for me, the, comp- the performance question was really, really similar to the one we have within sport. And we're just putting our process in place for them to follow. Another example, a very quick one would be from a golfer. You know, we had a golfer approached us. His performance question was a little bit different. He was very much saying, hey, look, I've got all of these scenarios in my life. I've got my nutrition for when I'm practicing. I've got my nutrition for in competition. I've got my nutrition for travel. I've got all of these different scenarios of teeing off at different times during the day when I fit in my loading. I just want to have these scenarios and I want to learn and iterate and refine these scenarios as well. So our approach with him was very much this two-way approach where we're coaching and we're getting feedback and he's building these strategies and constantly iterating. And for this player as well, you know, they they formed quite an integral part of uh, a major winning season, which that was great to be a part of as well. But um, yeah, in essence, Rob, I think there are things that we can learn across all of these performance genres that bleed into each other. Ben, just coming to you, I'd mentioned that in my perception was this this was just higher end. But I guess the more we talk about it, the more I start thinking, the more appropriate it is for the lower end because they've got less staff, they've got less support generally. Yes, there's less money in it in terms of salary to go towards this kind of support, but it almost seems more set up for lower level when there is one S&C coach and two physios or two physios, two S&C coaches, whatever it is. Would you agree on that? Yeah, 100%. And again, for those athletes, for those coaches out there who worked it, who, who have worked and do work in lower league, you, you'll typically don't have the resources or the facilities that you'd like to be able to do the, the training or the activities that you want to do with the players. And they'll often have their own gym membership or you'll be working with a local gym to arrange some sort of deal. And you're kind of rarely with them when they do their own gym sessions. Um, so... And, and inevitably they'll end up working with a trainer 
at the gym or something like that to get that additional support. Uh, whereas I guess what we want to try and do is take the lessons that we've learned from working in these elite sport environments and provide that type of support, um, yeah, that sort of support to those type of athletes. So again, they're already doing it. Let's refine what they're doing and help them answer those those performance questions. And I think that you know the, the way that we we're trying to view ourselves, and hopefully we're becoming viewed is like an additional support network for the club or for the organisation, rather than just for the player as well. Um, and, and I think that if it, if it's done well, then that's what it can be. It's a, we're trying to view it as like a force multiplier. Because, like you say, it's going to be happening anyway. So you might as well join the you might yeah. as well join the dots in this in this. Yeah, Let's try help. Let's try optimize, make things better. Um, and I think you know the sporting landscape, uh, not just within football, but across lots of different sports. It, people say it is changing. It, it has already changed, and we can either be at the forefront of that change and trying to optimize and do things which are generally going to be for the you know for the support of an athlete's career, um, or you can wait for the change to come slap you in the face and have to have to panic and respond to that. And I guess that's where we're trying to position ourselves is we want to be right at the forefront of the changes that are already happening in the nature of elite sport and we want to be there to support them. We'll definitely try, we'll keep, well, we not try, we'll keep this positive. But has there been any negative experiences that you've had when you've been, well, both of you, when you've been on the other side of the fence working with externals and anything that you've gone, now you're in this position on the your side of the fence going, yeah, we just need to stay away from doing X or let's not make sure we get sucked into doing Y. What do you think, Ben? I'll come to you yeah, in a minute, James. I, I, I think there's, you know, there's some obvious examples that you can kind of see within the media and stuff that would have, that would have popped up. So probably don't want to bring up individual cases because it's probably disrespectful to all the people involved. I would say that the most obvious cause of a lot of the friction points comes usually from a lack of communication. I know it's such a woolly thing to be able to say, so I'll be clear about what I mean by that. There's a mismatch in expectations uh, between what the uh, club feel is going to take place and what the player thinks and the independent support network feels is going to take place. So there's a mismatch of expectations both within the training of the day-to-day training environment and within, again, our athlete's sort of home environment. That's kind of a key one. And, and that's due to, is there clarity of how that's being communicated and the processes that are in place to, to be able to deliver that? Um, and then the other one is sort of disagreement on philosophy. So we, you know, I, I think we spoke last time when I was on the podcast about, does this particular club believe in strength training or do they not believe in strength training? Um, you know, do they believe in carbs, not carbs, you know, caffeine, not caffeine. So it, it will be those types of, challenges or changes in uh, the uh, philosophy that are different. And I think when you put the player at the center of that, the the player usually is fishing around and interested in knowledge. So they want to know how I can optimize myself and they want credibility around that as well. So I want to know as an athlete, how I can optimize myself and what the best way possible is. And I'll try and do something which aligns with my own personal values of um, how I see physical performance. Um, and then similarly, I want to find somebody who is, can credibly deliver that. Now, if a club is given a message which doesn't align with the player's values, 
then it kind of detracts from some of the credibility that the athlete will view that club, that the lens, the, the lens the athlete will view that the club practitioners through. And similarly, they'll just go and seek the people around them that can provide them with the things that align with their values. I think it's well, complicated the way I've explained it, but it probably comes back to my first point, which is, and this is the experience we had with, with England as well, which is kind of owning the crap stuff. So what I mean by that is if there is a point of friction, a difference in philosophy or difference in approach, the worst thing possible you can do is ignore it and swipe it under the carpet. Because just like any problem in life, the moment you choose to ignore it, it exponentially grows and it grows again and it grows again becomes, before it becomes catastrophic. Whereas if you're able to have those really challenging conversations about difference in philosophy and you're able to, and everyone's able to provide evidence and not just rationale and philosophy, but also evidence to support decision-making and have some really clear kind of landmarks in the sand, we will do this for this time and see if X, Y, or Z happens. Then I think it gives you the opportunity to mitigate some of that, that conflict. Just before you dive in, James, and might be a quick one for Ben on follow-up. In the Premier League, what would be your estimation, and using Premier League just as a, as a good example, what would be your estimation of how many players have individualised support away from a club? Well, I don't know. If it, I feel like if there's any investors listening out there, then I probably should have an answer to <laughs> that. But I, don't, um, I, I, I honestly don't know. And I think one of the reasons is that and I think James will probably go and speak about this later on, but it either happens in dribs and drabs. So I need this problem solving now, therefore I'm going to go solve that. Um, and often that isn't communicated between player and clubs, uh, or it happens for a period of time, then it comes off. Um, and I don't think there's, yeah, and, and then there's the other ones, which are the kind of longer term relationships as well. And, and I think that... It's probably going to be dependent on the club, the stature and, and of, of the individuals that within them and the resources available to them. And again, maybe some of their belief system values and how they align or don't with uh, the way they're being physically prepared within the club. Um, so I don't have an honest answer. And it's probably anywhere between 90% at certain clubs and 5% at others. Cool. Coming back to you, James. Any not so positive experiences yeah i mean i was i was just picking up on ben's last point there and you know i think that it's totally right i think at the moment it's done in a very piecemeal way you know in terms of the you know the external supports uh, outside of clubs and i guess you looping back around to your question rob you know i'm going to start and pick up from one of your last points ben it was around friction and there's two things to bring to mind for me here i think the first one is around extra testing and I can relate to this from both sides of the fence because I remember being in-house and you would have players going to see external specialists and they would get extra testing done. They would get normally some blood tests done, which were normally in not particularly valid, um, the blood test, or they'd get some extra body composition testing. And from now, in terms of setting up and working with Intra and 292, we've got a clear stance of saying, look, players often that start of a program will say, hey, look, I've got this nutrition program, so will you guys do some extra bloods for me? Or will you guys get me a DEXA? And one of the clear positions we have is that naturally, no, the club manage the testing process. And it's just so much easier that if the club are managing the testing in-house and they're sharing the data with us and the player, everyone's on the same page. 
There's one message, there's one data set. So for us, that just negates any problems down the road. And often, as Ben mentioned then, it means having sometimes a difficult conversation with a player up front saying, hey, look, you don't need this extra testing. Your club can do this testing. The testing you have in-house is absolutely fine. What we will do is we will work with you and work with the club around the interpretation and the plan. So that's probably the first one that springs to mind for me. The second one, uh, again, in terms of you know friction here, is managing the flow of information. And I think from a nutrition perspective, it's making sure we don't work in a silo, which can often happen from a nutritionist perspective. And one example, and this is a live one we have at the moment, actually, that um, you know typically what will happen is there's some work happening in, in-house with nutrition, maybe some body composition measurements. Now, often the easiest thing would be to do is to get the in-house nutritionist to speak to one of our team and to have a direct conversation. And that would be really easy for all of us to say, hey, go on and do that. However, we need a consistent flow of all the performance information to go into one place. And that would be training data, that would be conversations, that would be body composition. And that means that all of our team from the nutrition side and the performance side from Intran 292, everyone has access and everyone has the full context. And what that means is for the service we're providing is that we can sit down, we can discuss the data, And there's nothing that is in silo, which means that we're giving a more considered, more interdisciplinary service to the player and the club as well. So often it's just, again, about having those conversations early on and saying, hey, look, the best flow of information for us is this way, this practitioner to this practitioner, and this is how it's shared. And if we're really clear with that and set that up really well up front, we're just negating these problems and we're not kicking the can down the street because we're making it more efficient for player, club, and ourselves as well. So, yeah, those are my two, Rob, and, you know, obviously huge overlap with what Ben said then, but probably from a nutrition perspective. We'll come back. Oh, go on, Ben, jump in. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that there's probably one more which is probably worth discussing, which is around data sharing, um, which is obviously with GDPR regulations, it means that not only the athletes own the data that's being collected on them, but also they have the right to ask for it to be ported or transferred over in whichever way that they seem fit to be able to make use of it themselves as well. And, and I think this is a real source of, you know, particularly around things like GPS data um, or, you know, match-related data. This could be a real source of, um, of kind of contention and friction. So, but also when we think about the roles that we provide as of externals, our responsibility isn't to prepare the player for the next game or really even the next training session. That's definitely the club's responsibility to do that. And that's what they're responsible for and accountable for, right? We're there to help the player prepare in the longer term for the rest of their career and keep them becoming more and more resilient, improving different aspects of the performance uh, that they think are valuable to them over prolonged periods of time. So consequently, we know that the adaptations to training take place over longer periods of time. So we've got a really strong policy about how we use GPS data to say, we'll be reporting this back to you on a month-by-month basis to give you better solutions around your nutrition, around your recovery, around your sleep. And then to also measure the impact of the interventions that everyone is contributing to around specific aspects of your performance that you're working on, rather than saying, hey, listen, you've done too much or too little today, you need to do more or less tomorrow. Um, So it's being really clear about how we're, I guess some of our policies and operating principles um, to be really upfront about how we're negating some of that friction. 
I think that's a really nice way to frame it. And you've, there's clearly been a lot of thought in terms of from you guys, in terms of like the next game is not you, the next training session is not you. You're the you're the kind of pillar that follows this person throughout their career. Staff may change, managers may change, teammates change, but you're there consistently looking at that longer term career longevity piece. A hundred percent, because again, and I think that kind of delineation of responsibility helps as well and provides everyone with that so that kind of that framework for trust to know that you're not there to try and stitch someone up or to have an opinion about what their kind of training patterns are or their preparation patterns are on a day-to-day basis because having worked within the game and worked in lots of different environments between myself and James is we know that there's so much context that goes into each decision that's taking place on a day-by-day basis and when we've been at England, Arsenal, Birmingham, Millwall, Cardiff, wherever, wherever we've, Chelsea, wherever we've been, we always know that every single decision that we're making on a day-by-day basis could have gone left, could have gone right, could have done this, could have done that. Um, so you can never then be on the outside and go, why did they do this and why did they do that? Um, because we, we've been in those positions and, and you know that the kind of detail and the thought and the context that goes into those decision-makings and how, just how challenging they are. So we take the longer view because that's what we're there to support and support, I guess, the practitioners within the clubs to help them optimise their players' performance over the longer term as well. And I think that's a nice segue, and we'll come back to the data side because there's so much to discuss there. So it's good to get a very quick break in this chat with Ben and James. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we continue this conversation around external support teams and how we can maximise their impact. We have a little more of a chat around data data sharing, setting up systems to enable that flow of information, that, that flow of communication, that flow of data back and forth to the external coaches and support team and those in a club. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Vald. So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. And now back to the episode with Ben and James. In terms of that initial conversation with a with a player, like they've approached you, you've got an agreement, things are moving on, they want you involved. What's that first initial communication with the club or with the club practitioners to make sure that everyone understands where you fit and everyone is happy where the kind of club staff fit? What does that, what you said about communication being all fluffy and kind of up in the air, but what does that actually look like? I'll come to you, James, on that and obviously get Ben's input as well. Well, I think from us, you know, 
I would actually say that, you know, we're providing a cohesive service, right, in terms of myself and Ben, Intra 292 now with the player. And I would say probably the early conversation um, that we found in terms of setting this up with the club would actually be led by Ben on the overall performance side and the nutrition would fit in alongside this as well. So I think I would probably say, and Ben, feel free to jump in. This might be one for you to lead on and then you know we can see how nutrition yeah. fits into that. 100%. So the first question is to the player and to go, and, to, and before we even sign, to make sure we're really clear about how we want to operate with the club as well and make sure there's really good connection with that as well. Some players don't want us to operate and, and speak with the club. So we have to have a really challenging conversation with our potential clients about, okay, well, we know that you want to be doing this independently, but in order for us to gain the information that you want, we have to have a communication pathway first and foremost. Um, and secondly, in order to make sure that we're doing our due diligence, we have to give information back around what activities we're doing and why. Um, so we understand that you, the cl- you don't, maybe don't want the club to have an influence on what we're doing, um, but we need to be really clear about what we're doing and share that really, really thoroughly so that they can make good decisions and help you. And with those players there, the approach we t- tend to take is saying what we want to try and do is actually build more trust and a better relationship between you and the club. So then we speak to them and we go, okay, well, speak to the, hopefully we don't have that. Um, and if not, the first point of call is going, well, who's the best person to speak to at the club? Uh, and then will you let them know that we're going to be calling them and having a conversation um, with them? So then we, have, we, we set up the conversation, be really, really clear about what we're being asked to do. Um, so what the expectations of the player, what the goals are of the player and, and how they and what their kind of long-term aspirations in and why they've asked us for support. The next step from that is making sure that aligns with and having a like really good performance conversation and talking, talking training, talking nutrition, because these are the things that are the best things to chat about. Like, how do you do things? What can we do to support? What do you see? Um, so having a kind of quite a collegiate conversation there. And then also the next stage is how our processes work. So how would you like us to communicate with you? This is how we operate and the, the trans- and being really clear about our operating principles, how frequently we'll be working with the player, how frequently we'll be communicating with them, how we'll be doing that, the data conversation we've had. We've got a social media policy as well. So they make sure they, they know that we're not going to be posting everything, any interaction that goes on on social media and might be using it for our individual marketing purposes and being clear about how that relationship works as well. And then leaving the conversation with some clarity around what our next steps are together and how they'd like to see us working. You know, and some of those, most of those conversations are actually really, really positive and the best clubs and organisations we've worked with have got their own really strong policy and ways of working around that, which are really collegiate and want to find a way of embracing this. And then there's other clubs that, that aren't and we have to try and stick really strongly to them. And that's why we've got these really strong principles and ways of operating in place so that we feel at the very, very least we're doing the right thing um, and we can operate in a way which is ultimately going to be the best for the athlete and their performance. Just thinking if you've got... A, is that clear? Yeah, no, absolutely. If, you, if you've got... A, just me thinking now, if you've got a squad of 25 and you're at X Champions League club, 
each player could have potentially have someone different. So how is that viewed from the internal staff? Because that's obviously extra workload, not to manage the externals, but at least keep communication going and and understand what's going on. So they're not only understanding what's going on from players, they've, they've got potentially these numerous externals. How how do you ensure that that is a, this, as seamless as it possibly can be without becoming overwhelming from from an internal staff perspective? That's a great question. And that's actually come up a few times. Um, what I, I, my operating principle, our operating principles are how do you want to receive information and when, you know, is it a WhatsApp group with the world and their wife in it? Um, and, you know, everyone's in and we just constantly just popping updates through there. And some of those WhatsApp groups are real one-way traffic, which is like, this is a way that, Look, 292 are sharing information with the club rather than the other way around or do we want to have a chat on a monthly basis or every couple of months um, just about how things are progressing um, we really hope actually our, our aspiration is that we recognise that there are some there are players who want this type of support and we also recognise for example when players go on loan moves from a big club to a, like a lower resource club that they a lot of the times these organisations these clubs want the players to have more bespoke and individualised strength and conditioning physical performance nutrition support and they might not be able to have that at that you know within the club that they're going to online so our, our aspiration is that actually that the clubs are recommending players to us or even buying some of our services to be able to be an extension of their team when they have some of their big assets going to or they're potentially big assets going to be in, you know, into a League One or a Championship Cup to develop. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that I guess that's how we view it. Like it's really challenging. We completely understand that. So what works best for you, and how can we make it as frictionless and seamless as possible, um, with the overall aim of making sure that we're such a valued member of this kind of broader support team that there's an investment from the organisation. I was actually thinking when we first started, is there a possibility that at some point it, you are an extension of the club versus being brought in by the player? And while you've been talking, of how, how could that work? But clearly that could work when loan moves happen. In terms of nutrition, that James, that that's a quite a nice one because it seems an obvious um, potential resource drop if someone's going from... Premier League to League One or Championship to League Two, whatever it is. How would you then step in and, and help that situation? Well, there's a couple of interesting points that Ben's just touched on there. And, you know, one recent example was around the provision uh, around loans, for example. So over the last four or five years, Intra as an organization, we provided the practitioners for Champions League level club in-house. So the practitioners were in there. And loans is a department that are typically underserviced, right? And the one thing we found was that we went from having no nutrition support for loans within the department to increasing the touch points to monthly with the loans players. Now, with a big group, I think we know that still isn't enough. So, you know, for us at the moment, as Ben mentioned, 
our service, you know, we're able to provide this trusted extension to players when they are on loan and they are needing more support that the club may not have the infrastructure in-house. So I think that's one really important uh, area that we would help and support. And from a nutrition perspective as well, um, you know, we're obviously having conversations with the teams internally. I think the other the really important point that Ben mentioned is, is part of the sign-up process here, all of our programs are long-term. So when we sign a player, we sign them for 12 months. And the reason we do that is to provide continuity for the player, continuity for the staff, continuity for the club. And what that encourages, it gives everyone confidence because it means that firstly, the player is entering into a body of work over the 12 months. So they're invested within that. It also means for myself and Ben, the team, we have confidence that we're on board for 12 months and we have time to work with the player. However, we can also challenge the player without the fear of it being a short-term contract and them not liking it. So this really works for both ways. And the other way that we protect ourselves with this, Rob, and this is really important, is we have long-term contracts with all of the clients. The reason why that is important is because it protects both parties as well. It protects the player and it protects us. And everything is really clearly documented on what our services will include with the player. As Ben mentioned, confidentiality clauses, data privacy clauses. So everything is really well delivered and everyone is really clear what the service is and how it will be delivered. And I think historically, external services were seen as this messy, we've got this person, your guy, your guru, who's on call 24-7, Right. You know, the guy that's got his arm around the players in Dubai, that was what external services were seen as. And that's what we're trying to move away from. We're trying to move into a position here where we're a business and we have contracts in place and the contracts are very clear on the service deliverables. And that's really important to us. And, you know, the other thing, being really honest, and this is something we talk about a lot, having these procedures in place, it can be really time consuming, it can be really costly. I'll give you one really uh, live example. Recently, we had a player who um, we were negotiating the contract with, they were looking through, and our legal team, the partner at the legal firm, we were with one partner, the player was with the other partner. So down the legal firm, they weren't allowed to confer. So we were actually going backward and forward on clauses and speaking to one of my legal friends, this was essentially called lawyering the contract. So we had the same house that we were negotiating with and it was getting quite expensive and it was a real learning. But one of the things that we learned from that was when we came out the other side of this process, we had a lot of trust with the player because the player knew that he was protected. We knew that we were protected as well. And as Ben mentioned, the big ethos that we're trying to put through here is this is long term. You know, we've talked about everything being long term towards the player's career. This is the same thing with the protection and I guess the infrastructure that we're putting in place, how we're managing information and the contracts as well. All of these things feed in and this infrastructure takes time to build. And at times it's a bit messy, right, Rob, when we're building it, but that's the intention of what we're trying to do. How big a pull is it for players? You mentioned, you've both mentioned social media and James, I did have a chuckle because you mentioned the, the arm round, the, the player in Dubai last time. So I'm so glad you brought that up, that little that little phrase up. How, how big a pull is that for potential clients that that's just not going to be the case with you guys? You know what, actually, when... Go on, James. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's a really easy one for us, Rob. Um on nearly every occasion, uh, 
I'd say players, but I'd also broaden this out now to the musicians, you know, the, the golfers, the other athletes. Nine times out of ten, they're really relieved. You know, not, you know, one of the things that we really we get on the front foot and say very early is we're very discreet, and this is even before that we've gone to the contract stage, right? Because in any sort of process with this, we've got an initial meeting. And as I think Ben, ben mentioned earlier on, right, we might be meeting with their agency, their manager, the player, and we're just trying to understand a bit about each other. We're just kicking it around a little bit. And one of the things that we really want to be clear about is, hey, look, guys, we are, we're not trying to leverage you. This, this isn't what this is about. We want to provide a very, very professional service, and it's very clear, and we're not going to be leveraging on social media. And um, nine times out of ten, they're really pleased with that. And they often reference occasions where either they've been leveraged previously or they've, they see other players being leveraged or, or leveraged or other athletes being leveraged as well. And that's seen as a negative. So for us, I mean, with our ethos, obviously kind of going back to the start here a little bit, we were really brought up in an environment, Rob, with the UK Sports Institute where we were practitioners first and our main motivation was having impact with athletes and improving their performance. And we've had to probably learn the business acumen alongside that. And we've had to learn, you know, actually how do you market services? Uh, and you go through this period of feeling, oh, that feels a bit uncomfortable, you know, um, and you try and find the right balance. So for us, we would always err on that side. But for the players, the, the feedback that we've got is that's really important to them. Ben, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that was nailed it. Really, I think that the, the the basic message for me is that as a company, we want to tell our story, and as an individual, as an athlete, you want to tell your story. So our responsibility is to tell our company's story, and your responsibility to tell your story. Now, if you want to tell your story and use our company to tell your story, then brilliant. But we won't be using your story to tell ours. You know, um, and, and I think the it, I think, you know, speaking frankly, it probably provides a bit of a marketing challenge as well, because let's be fair, like with everyone, that's where everybody lives, spends a significant amount of their time. Um, but I, I think in the longer term, we're trying to gain more trust and, and do higher quality work um, over longer periods of time. So I'm hoping in the long term that, you know, that, that supports how we want to do business as well, you know. Back to your favorite topic, Ben, the data side of things. How do you how yeah. how do you set up systems that enable that free flowing of data? So you've got one club on one system that use, you know, certain tech. You've got a different one on a different system that uses different tech. How does that intermingle to make it seamless? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things. So I've invested in data science um, with my company. You know, our company is invested in data science, and I think for couple of reasons here uh, like one because I don't have the skills or the expertise to do that myself so it's really important that I've got the capacity I've got I've got resource within my company to be able to do that um, that's first and foremost and then secondly I think that what I want to do a good job of my company is tell great stories with data so the, the reason why you capture data is to either make a decision or help an athlete change a behavior Right, and the way that you do that is by telling really compelling stories and giving information in a really visually appealing way, which makes like wow, that it's really obvious that that's what I need to do. Um, and I recognise I, I don't have the skills uh, or the capacity to do that. So um, I've got a fantastic uh, data scientist 
that I work with, um, who's, you know, he's an artist uh, and he's technically very, very savvy and has built some really great automated solutions. And I'm really happy and proud to share some of the reports that we, we have around that. Um, and then we also use breakaway performance or breakaway data, um, who are a company that essentially specialize in putting athletes' data in their own hands. And you know, they've got the resource, the legal framework and the infrastructure to be able to um, essentially build the data connections and I use the data that we connect to be able to visualize it in the way that I want to visualize it. This is understanding the limitations of what you can and can't do and then outsourcing to support those areas. Sorry, you, you may have said this in there and this is me being daft, but the, the data that you collect on your end, is that been integrated within the club or is that with the club systems or is that sitting separate but the club can access it should they want to? Sit separate, but the, you know the, the way I look. It sits separate, but the club can access it. And that's where I share. We share as a policy. We share absolutely everything, both in terms of the raw data and the reports. And obviously, you know it's the athletes' data, so it's you know with their permission we share it, um, and that is. But but that's part of the onboarding process as well. Um, so that that's first and foremost. And if they've got any systems at the club, I've got a system or the organisation have got systems they want us to connect to then It's easy enough for us to do that. Um, but like I said, it's kind of on the request of the player because it's the player's information and data. I was going to ask this early on. and I, I, I'm disappointed that I've, it's taken this long to come back to it. But when there's a different philosophy, and I suppose this comes back to the data, this comes to the use of tech. If there is different philosophies, how do you manage that? There could be a, like one philosophy might be player because he's had something before. There could be a philosophy from you because that's what you believe in. You've got a club. How does that all be pulled together to move things forward? Do you know what? It's actually a problem that I've been... That was a curtain. Wow. Um, that's actually a, a problem that I've been trying to solve for um, all my career. If you, if you look at all the environments that I've been, most of the environments that I've spent majority of my career in, it's been in the place where we're providing additional different types of services for support to the, the the daily training environment. So that conflict, I guess, is something that I've that I've grown up with. Um, the way that I approach it um, is that it's my way or it's the highway. No, I'm absolutely not. That joke in there. But the, the the way I try to approach it is that um, we we try to collect data and evidence is really really important. Um, we try and understand uh, understand the why, like what are the differences, and then the other thing is I'm much more precious and care about the outcome than I do about the process. So the first, forget about everything else. What are the thing, what's the thing that that you are trying to change? That this athlete is trying to change? Like what what absolutely is it? Regardless of anything else, regardless of what we believe in, what's it trying to change? What evidence have we got? that is going to help us make the decision about what the most appropriate methods or tools are for making that change. And then how do you present in that in a way that's going to be best understandable to the athlete and the additional stakeholders. And then giving everyone an opportunity to contribute to that, that problem as well. But I think if you frame the problem in terms of an outcome um, and then with evidence, then hey, listen, if, if we're doing a squat or a lunge or we're, we're jumping, it, it doesn't really matter as long as we're getting the adaptation we're looking for. So it's an adaptation-based 
approach rather than a process-based approach. It doesn't matter. Uh, and I feel, I feel really strongly about that. What we're trying to elicit is chronic adaptive responses in athletes based on the objectives and goals they've set to try and maximize their performance. So if they believe in one thing or the other, it makes no difference to me. The most important thing is we get there. How have you tackled that, James, from a nutrition perspective? The one thing I was just thinking about there, Rob, as Ben was speaking, was really sort of clarifying expectations with with our uh, athletes first of all, with our you know with our players, and you know one of the things that we've seen across the board, Rob, in terms of nutrition, especially within football, uh, is that when nutrition is done well, the relationship is set up well with the player, and that's the relationship is two way. So we're working with the player to provide the strategies, um, but we also need information back from the player to help refine the strategies. And it's really important the player understands straight away that the process is iterative. So what we've tended to find, especially early on with nutrition, is that sometimes the player's stance initially would be passive. And what I mean by this is they'd expect you to give them a plan for match day or a plan for training. Whether they followed it or not, we wouldn't know. It would just disappear, right? You know, the, the plan was there. But we try and stress quite heavily at the start that this is a, a two-way process. And actually, to get the most from nutrition, the player needs to buy into this, you know, as well. And I think this is one of the ch- big challenges also, Rob, that's reflected within club and outside of club as well, you know, sitting on both sides of the fence here previously, is that, um, you know, within nutrition, there's a real balancing act within the club of how much you provide for the player, and at times, how much the player does for themselves. A classic example for this might be plating up food. Now, should the club be plating up food for the player all the time? Or is there times where the player should be plating up their own food, making a recovery drink, so or organizing their supplements? Now, there's an argument, I believe, to say there are times that the, we need to stress test the player's competencies. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, not all the time, but at certain times, are we just checking that these uh, basic competencies that the player can evidence themselves? And I use that word evidence because it's really important because we need to be building evidence that the player's competencies are improving season on season. And the reason why this is important is, especially within the international game, that when we're talking about England, we're talking about France, we're talking about very heavily resourced performance of national federations. So it will often mean that with good communication, strategies can transfer from club to country, back and forth, relatively seamlessly. However, when we've got some of our top performing players here and they're going to other countries who might not have the infrastructure around nutrition, it means the player has to step forward. They have to take ownership for what they're doing. Otherwise, it falls down. So that for us is really important. Having that conversation earlier on with the player around expectations at times, maybe having this conversation with the club or national team as well. But we're kind of looping back here to the start of the conversation, Rob, as well. And if we're looking at some of the other athletes, if we're looking at golfers that are on the PGA Tour, if we're looking at cricketers maybe playing in the IPL, they're having to manage a lot of these strategies for themselves. So it's back to this word we've used a few times, ownership. You know, this is really important for us that we, at the start of the process, are really clear with the player and they understand that to get the most from this, they have to take ownership. And like Ben was saying, we work really hard for them to understand why they're doing things. And we just, we like to really test and check and and build evidence around that. And I guess there's a second point for me, Rob, as well. I won't go on too long with this point, but, you know, we really believe in a deeper dive around nutrition as well. And this really starts from the first meeting, the first consultation. And 
it's really good for us to visit the player's home, to have a video call with the player in their home environment, because often the relationship changes. Sometimes when you're in a club and you've got the kit on and everything is in a controlled environment, you have one insight into a player. Often for us, we're trying to see the real 360 as well. What's happening in the time the player's away from the training ground? And there are some clubs doing this as well, and, and, that, and that's really great. For us, we're really trying to understand what's going on in the home environment as well. And to really see where these gaps are with what they're applying, you know, how are they executing these nutrition strategies is their partners providing support for this? Do they have family living in-house? Do they have a chef? Do they have meal delivery? You know, where is this implementation falling down? And this kind of brings me full circle to the last point, really, Rob. And like for us, it's about really taking a deep dive across a player's nutrition because the one thing that we found with our work with UEFA is probably the biggest take-home action point from that consensus is that players' fueling doesn't match their demands for the day. So what we typically tend to find is when a player is preparing or recovering from a match, they tend to underfuel. So that's suboptimal, obviously, for their performance recovery, their capacity within match play. On the other side of the coin, though, on days where the training volume is lower, players tend to overeat. So what we have is we have this really, this middle ground of habits that players tend to form with their nutrition. And our role as practitioners is really trying to manipulate their behavior and get them to understand how they should marry their nutrition to the different loading and different objectives for the day. And when they do that, the results that we see are twofold, right? We see changes in body composition that are favorable, reductions in body fat, maintenance of lean mass, but we also see an increase in capacity during matches as well, again, that we can track the data that we're getting through as well. So I think for us, you know, it starts with the why, there's a deeper dive here, um, and there's also challenging conversations along the way, right? Perfect. I think that's a nice little place to uh, bring us to an end. But thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Have you both got websites that people can check out and understand more about what you do? I'm guessing you do. Yeah, yeah. 292performance.com. James, what's yours? Uh, intraperformancegroup.com. Love that. And social media, I know it's not a thing you're not going to be seen on Dubai, in Dubai with various different players. Maybe you are. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. But you've both got Instagram, Twitter, people can find you there. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I'm not madly active, but, but James is at it all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> as, you, as you can probably as you can probably tell yeah. um, Absolutely. My, my handle is, is is james collins pn on both but not massively active but it's there perfect right guys i'm gonna let you go but have a great christmas thank you very much for coming on really appreciate the last hour and i uh, look forward to seeing where this develops seeing you guys and the business develop and um look forward to chatting to you soon Rob, look, just just a quick one. Thank you so much for having us on, and also for the brilliant work you're doing for our community as well. Um, so thank you. No, I appreciate that. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, love you. Thank say. you so thank much, you. Rob. Yeah, really appreciate your right. time today. Yes, great to meet. Thank you. You too, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 478 of the Pacey Performance Podcast and the first of 2024. Big thanks to James and Ben for coming on the podcast, being so open and honest about uh, an area that is certainly growing, or certainly these two hope that it is, but it definitely it definitely is. And for being open and honest about the kind of things they're doing with clubs, how they're maximizing their own impact, how they're sharing systems and data, uh, and some just some really interesting insights into this side of the industry. 
Big thanks to Team Builder, Play and Vild for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, and look forward to chatting to you next time.